This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. Whatever happened to Michael Clark has been one of the most frequently asked questions among racing fans in the last decade. The former multiple premiership winning jockey and rider of some of Australia's best-loved horses of the 80s and 90s, disappeared from the Melbourne racing scene around 2002 and has maintained a low profile ever since. But the emergence of his very talented son, Michael Poy, has enticed Michael Clark back to the racetrack in recent times, and it's good to see him rekindling old friendships. Michael's partnership with champion trainer Colin Hayes brought him four consecutive Melbourne Jockeys Premierships, a Melbourne Cup win on Atalak in 1986, and a memorable Japan Cup win on the champion Better Loosen Up in 1990. I am absolutely delighted to welcome to the podcast a man who was the toast of Australian racing during his years with the Lindsay Park Racing Machine. Michael Clark, I'm delighted to finally track you down. Oh, good morning, John, and what a pleasure for me. Um, you're one of my racing idols. Um, you, Bill Collins, those sort of men, so what a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks, Mike. Well, your boy, Michael Poy, as I said, is 19. He's already out- outridden his country claim, and he looks to have a very bright future. You tell me he's got a tremendous work ethic. Yes, John, um uh, a little bit, not a little bit of a surprise, because as a young boy he loved his footy, um, and because I wasn't riding, uh, you know, his interest in racing probably wasn't the to the fore. Mm. But um, he used to come to the stables with my dad, who was training, and um, my brother, and that sort of got him interested probably when he was about twelve, thirteen, and. Um, He's very lucky, John. He's got a job that he just loves doing, and um, and I'm not saying you know to make money out of it. He just loves uh, his work, um, and he loves his riding. So that's half the battle. That he's a, he's got a job that he he actually loves going to. He's with Henry Dwyer nowadays. Yes, he, he started with Stewie Webb. And and I must say, Henry's been absolutely brilliant, right? But mm. Stuart um, is one of those old racing style trainers, um, very firm, and and his work ethic is what he's installed into Michael, and he's taught Michael to be a real horseman, John. Right? Mm-hmm. Like um, he can take shoes off a horse. He he knows more about a horse than just being a, a jockey. He's got that horseman skills, mm-hmm. and Michael owes Stewie, um, you know, so much. For so far, what's happened in his career, and and also Robert Smurden was amazingly good to Michael. He goes by the name of Michael Poy, and that puzzles many people in racing. Now, the popular theory is that to use the name Michael Clark, he would have had to live in your shadow. Are we close to the mark there, or not right? No, mate, I, my shadow would be such a small shadow, right? You know, it's, it's not like uh, a Beatman or, or, you know, those famous jockeys. Um, no, but look, um, Michael's mum, her, uh, her, her father was Les Poy, who rode in Sydney. Mm. And her um, sister's Carmen uh, Poy back then, who's Carmen Hood, yep. who, who married Mickey Hood. Correct. So... Um, 
And Michael, uh, Janelle's grandfather was old Papa Boy, who, you know, was very well known around the Sydney racing circles as well as her dad. Mm. So I was married to Natasha Burton, and then me and Janelle have been together ever since um, um, for my divorce. So mm. we just went happy to go with uh, her name, and it keeps the, the racing alive for them and the hoods. And Michael's got a real big following because of... Um, all the Hood family were in racing and the poise, so it's it's really good. You must have been asked that same question many times over, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it, it doesn't worry us. And, and like, um, my family are very close with Michael as well, so it's it's just really good. No, you know, no complaints at all, John. Now, you were apprenticed to your late dad, Arthur Clark, who'd been a jockey, I can remember seeing your dad ride when he was apprenticed to Fred Hood here at Rose Hill in Sydney. Yeah, I can remember as a young boy going to, I think it was Prospect Street and Hope Street. And yeah. That's when uh, Jack Denham was training and Doc Chapman, all those sort of trainers back in those days. Oh, that's right, Ray Guy was there. So I re- remember going up as a young boy being around the stables with the Hoods. And, um, yes, my brother was apprenticed to old Freddie Hood. Yep. My dad was apprenticed to old Freddie Hood uh, as well as his son, Freddie's son, Mickey. Mm. So mum and dad remained great friends with the Hoods and so have uh, me and Janelle's related to them. So... Um, they all show such a keen interest in um, young Michael, like Stephen Hood, who trained and rode amateur, and Michael, who um, rode as a jockey, Michael Hood. Mm. They get a great um, kick out of, you know, every day get up and follow what if he's got rides or where he's riding, and, and it gives everyone a great interest. Your dad was based at the wonderful training centre at Epsom, which is now long gone, and you made your debut at Werribee, Michael, in the late 1970s on a horse called Flying Windsman, trained by your dad. A most inauspicious debut. You were never sighted. No, that's correct. Um, I had a wonderful upbringing, John, um, similar to the Hood family where they had the stables in the backyard. I grew up as a kid with the stables in our backyard, right? So we had probably 22 boxes. So before school, I'd work with the horses and my brothers were jockeys and um, after school, I'd be there and, you know, maybe sneak the odd day off uh, during the week to go to a race meeting if we had a runner. Mm. But very lucky, um, my dad, who I just recently lost, was actually very hard the last few months losing dad, but mm. had some wonderful memories. He was uh, firm, but a fair taskmaster, uh, and he, he expected you to work harder, but he taught me a lot about racing and, um, in general, you know, about life. Like, you, uh, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah. Michael, many people were sad to see Epsom go to the developers. It was the, the home of champion horses and champion horsemen for so long. Well, John, just, you know, unfortunately they're talking about Caulfield going and then maybe eventually uh, Flemington. But, you know, I sort of miss those days where the stables were in streets. So you'd see the horses walking around the streets and and the same at Rose Hill, I can remember that. Mm. So now everything being on course, it just seems a little bit maybe probably safer in ways, Mm. but you don't get that atmosphere where we, at Epsom there was probably about 30 to 40 trainers that had houses with stables in their backyard. Mm. 
So probably because of property prices and and maybe safety being on course is is the way they've gone. Mm. There is no more pleasant sound than the clippity-clop of steel horseshoes on a bitumen road. Well, I actually showed young Michael not long ago. We lived um, right opposite the gates at um, Epson, right? Mm. So, and there was next to us was George Hamlin. Johnny Hawkes eventually took those stables years to come with the Inghams. Mm. Um, there was uh, Jim Maloney, Johnny Marr, Ian Saunders. And on a Sunday, we would ride one horse and lead one from our street right up to the, the beach, which we had to across the Pan Highway. And if you've seen the traffic today, you'd be amazed that it could be done. Yeah. You know, but that's not just our stable. All the stables did that. They'd ride up on a Sunday leading a horse either side and, and there'd be a little boat there and we'd all swim the horses and ride them back. Mm. But, you know, they, you know, probably when you look back in hindsight, those days it was probably a little bit more dangerous than we realised at the time. Yeah, exactly. But you were young and daring. Oh, well, that, that was just the work ethic and, and the way the trainers were back then. Mm. It was your 22nd ride before that elusive first winner came up and you had to go a long way to get it, to Rang. The horse's name was Seaboss and yeah. I bet you remember it as though it were yesterday. Yeah, I was only 15 mm. and I can remember I um, mum and dad dropped me or mum dropped me at St Kilda Seabars where the jockeys used to sweat mm. and I got in the car with a jumping jockey, Bill Londrigan, mm. and we picked up Jack Styring on the way, who was a famous race caller and still going, what yeah. a gentleman. Turned 90 and, recently, Michael. Yeah, yeah, such a well-liked and great racing personality, and mm. Jack called the race, and I've still got, John, I've got to find it, but after the race being my first winner, Jack gave me a little cassette. Did he? And, um, you know, he's saying he's bearing the molars to the breeze. and You know, he was just a character. <laughs> he was. He was. So, a- yeah, I've got great memories of my first day. I, I didn't hit the ground running as a superstar jockey. Um, yeah. You know, I had to work at my craft. And, um, yes, it took a while to sort of get things together. A very important early win for you was on a horse called Quabo. It was the William Reed Stakes. It was then a Group 2, Michael, which takes a little bit of gloss off it. But I'll bet you've never forgotten Quabo. No. Um, I was lucky, John. Um, at Epson, I'd start riding work for my dad, right? And then uh, I hooked up with, um, you know, Bruce Hill in Queensland. His dad, mm. old Frank, and his yeah. mum, Shirley, yeah. were battlers, right? From New- They just moved from New Zealand. And... Like, I'm a young kid, so I'd go and ride work for him, and uh, Eddie Lang was, at the same time, I'd go and ride work for him, and the smaller trainers back then, but they give the kids a go, right? So I can remember with Frank Hill going to, like, places like uh, Hanging Rock, and we had this horse, a secret show, that I'd won a Hanging Rock Cup on, a Terrellgan Cup, and don't worry, I'd put some ordinary rides in, right? But they'd forgive <laughs> you. They were those sort of people, and then I, yeah. Eddie Lang, like, you can imagine 18, mm. group uh, group two or the Menocardo Stakes, and yeah. I remember Tommy Smith brought Ideal Planet down, and he was a big chestnut, huge rap on him, mm. and I wasn't expecting the right Gabo, but Eddie said, look, you've won on the horse, I'll leave you on in this race. Mm. So, you know, they were people that were, and today, I'm still good friends with um, the Langs and 
unfortunately, the Hill, Mr. And Mrs. Hill passed away, but Bruce, they're genuine people and, um, you know, just lucky to be a part of that. And, and they, they gave me a really good grounding that, you know, uh, it's hard to find people like that, John. Your very first ride for Colin Hayes was a winner. The date, Michael, was the 31st of July, 1982, so the season was all but over. You were 18 or 19. The horse was Touch a Rainbow at Mooney Valley, and you got on him that day by a bizarre twist of fate. Yeah, quite amazing how things can happen, but one thing I was always taught, John, was to be ready you know, fit, ready to go, right? Because things can unfortunately happen. Um, Stephen Sharman was supposed to ride Touch a Rainbow and he was a really, really gun apprentice at the time. Um, he has a fall the race before that I was in and he broke his collarbone, couldn't ride. So I was virtually the only apprentice left in that could ride. I think the horse might had 51, right? Mm. So I'd never met Colin Hayes, never had a ride for him. Um, I knew Brent Thompson, but not real well. Um, so I wasn't connected with any of those big stables, right? So I get the call up, um, you know, Stephen's out, I get on the horse, and I can never forget this. I, I was a bit nervous because I've gone out to the mounting yard, and Colin Hayes had two runners in the race, and Brent was riding the short prize favourite. And as I walked in the mounting, I went up to Mr. Hayes and I said, oh, Mr. Hayes, how are you? hello, you know. And he said, oh, son, what's your name? He, he had no idea who I was, right? No, no. So I meet him, I meet Robert Sengster and his wife, and, and Brent Thompson back then was like my idol jockey. Mm. You know, everyone wanted to ride like Brent or be like him. So for me to have a ride, and I'm riding the 66 to 1 shot or the outsider of the field, he's got the favourite and Colin Hay said to me, he said, oh, look, Michael, he said, drop him out. He said, this horse works a lot better than what his form suggests. He said, if you get him travelling well, he said, he could run hard. He said, if you get down to school, he said, you see Brent in front of you, tack on to him. Mm. So the story unfolds. Uh, Touch a Rainbow gets up and wins, beats Brent, and um, it sort of gave, um, it got me the recognition to ride for someone like him. Mm. And then the following, I think it was the following Wednesday, Stephen was to ride three or four horses for Mr. Hayes and I took over because he was out and I rode another couple of winners and, and that led to me getting the opportunities to ride such great horses and to work for such wonderful people. Mm. Well, fate stepped in again, Michael, not long after when Colin Hayes' number two jockey, Jimmy Courtney, suffered a broken leg. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, Mr. Hayes, what happened? I rode those few winners and he said, right, he said, you know, why Stephen's out? You can come and, you know, mainly ride for the claiming horses. Mm. And then Jimmy Courtney broke his leg in Adelaide and Mr. Hayes asked my dad, who was apprenticed to, mm. um, can Michael come over? It would be great experience. He can ride um, as the number one jock in Adelaide while Jimmy's out. So I went over there, and, and that was a wonderful experience. Um, you know, Colin, they were just, even though I was so famous and, you know, respected people, they were really genuine. And um, I can remember back then, John, I was expecting to be in the boys' quarters, and they actually put me in the main house downstairs. It's like two separate houses. Yeah. And I spent time with David Hayes, and what a character, and just a great bloke. And that started my association where, 
you know, I was working at, at Lindsay Park, quite a bit closer to the Hazers, getting to know them, and, and that led to me coming back to Vic. Now, Mike, you did the last 18 months of your apprenticeship at uh, Lindsay Park with Colin Hayes, and there is a story that isn't well documented, but a story that exemplifies the generosity of Colin Hayes. And I'm sure you won't mind my raising the subject. When an apprentice finished his or her time, and I assume it's still the same or very similar, the master of that apprentice received 33 and 1/3% of the money being held in the apprentice's trust fund. That was the normal procedure. Colin Hayes was entitled to part of that money, but he refused to accept it. Oh, John, this is what I respect so much of the Hayes, right? Um, They're really wonderful racing people, but really good people underneath. Um, Colin Hayes, I'm not saying, um, you know, like he was marvellous to me, giving me rides and all that, but the the trainers were entitled to that percentage. So... When I was turned 21, I had my 21st in my brother's house, and it was near Sandown Racecourse. And I'd asked the boss, I said, oh, boss, I said, you know, would you, I know you're busy, but, you know, would you like to come? He said, oh, he said, after the races, I'll call in and just say hello, have a cup of tea. He said, I've got an early flight back. So he calls in and, and gave me a card, and a, a, he actually gave me a gift, and he said, there's a, a special gift in the card. And it was a, a release form from the VRC back then mm-hmm. that the entitlement he was to my apprentice bank earnings, yeah. you know, over that last 18 months, he actually gave back to me. He said, uh, I'll never forget his card. I've still got it somewhere here. Mm-hmm. He said, it's been a pleasure to have you. He said, you work ethic and, and you know, he said, uh, you've earned the money and I'm happy to, to give it back to you, which he did. Yeah. Well, that just speaks volumes, doesn't it? Oh, that's what I'm saying, John. Like, um, you know, I can never knock the hoses because they've been so wonderful to me. Uh, also, my brother, Gary. Like, I remember um, I was having, after track work with Colin Hayes, when he was in Melbourne, you'd spend some time with him, right? And we'd talk about the horses. Then after the horses, we might talk about, um, well, Gary Fancy had come in and out and David might be there. And we'd talk about family matters, his family, mine, and... He said to me one day, he said, you know, what's your brother's doing? I said, oh, one's gone to Malaysia, Singapore to ride, and my other brother's struggling a little bit, Gary. I said, um, he said, oh, yeah, he said, he rode many winners. I explained to him that Gary had won a Metro, I think, on Boldness in Sydney or a Chairman's, one of those races, and Mm. won a South Australian derby years ago, and I said he ran fourth in the Melbourne Cup. And he said to me, he said, oh, where's he riding today? It was a Saturday morning. Mm. I said, we're going, which we had runners at Flemington. I said, he's riding at Maui. I said, he's really struggling. He might have had one or two rides. Mm. So after the Flemington meeting, that after we get in the colours, he said to me, he said, oh, look, tell your brother to come in for track work on Monday. And I'm not promising anything, but, um, you know, we'll just see how things go. So Gary came in, um, met Mr Hayes and sort of felt a little bit out of place but after a few weeks he you know said to me he said oh look you know we'll give Gary a bit of a go and see how things work out and I think that year Johnny won or won a new market on Grandiose he eventually won like Oakley Plate Guineas and he he won a Victoria Derby for him on King's High Mm. so that's what sort of man he wasn't they never just thought about themselves there 
if you work for them and, and everything was all right, they, they gave, you know, the people that probably lesser lights or struggling a go. And that's what sort of man he was. And so began a wonderful journey for young Michael Clark as number three jockey for the Lindsay Park racing machine behind Brent Thompson and Mick Mallion. And we're going to pause now for a break on the podcast. When we come back, we'll find just where uh, that journey led Michael Clark. The sale that has produced the likes of the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Esther Jarb, Russian Revolution, Moss Fun, Pino and Flying Artie in recent years has again attracted a stunning catalogue for 2019. The Australian Easter Yearling Sale catalogue is now available online and its depth and quality is again without peer in the Southern Hemisphere's Yearling Sale season. Among this year's spectacular Easter catalogue of 450 yearlings are 39 siblings to Group 1 winners like the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Sunlight, Lankan Rupee, Brazen Bow, Shulls, Faulkner, Star Spangled Banner, Catchy, Dundeal, I Victory, Lucky Bubbles, Shooting to Win, She Will Reign, Seamus Award and Pino. There is also the progeny of 34 Group 1 winning mares such as Hasna, River Dove, Pear Tart, Our Egyptian Rain, Rostova, Steps in Time, Brazilian Pulse, Provocative, Headway and Dizel. Super Stallion Schnitzel is the leading sire with 37 entries while the ill-fated Sebring has 33. Fastnet Rock 31, I Am Invincible 31, there are 25 Vancouver's, 22 by Reduce Choice, 21 by Zoo Star, 19 by Medagliadoro, 19 by Pride of Dubai, So You Think has 18 in the catalogue and they round out the top 10. There is, as always, a strong international flavour with yearlings by the likes of Deep Impact, Frankel, Lord Canaloa, Tappet and Harbinger also catalogued. The 2019 Inglis Easter Yearling Sale is just bursting with quality. Look for the catalogue online. Well, Michael, you went to dizzy heights uh, during those wonderful years with Lindsay Park and uh, that era brought you the privilege to ride one of the great gallopers of his time. Better Loosen Up was originally trained by Les Theodore, who won a two-year-old race with him at Bendigo. Bart Cummings took over for the horse's three-year-old year. He won four city races for Bart. He ran second in the Canterbury Guineas too, seventh in the Rose Hill Guineas. Then he had a good spell. He turned up at Lindsay Park. And is it true, Michael, that Colin Hayes wasn't overly impressed at first. He thought he might have been a Bart reject. Well, probably at first, John, because he was a nondescript-looking horse, like, you know, not over big, pretty light gelding. Um, there was nothing flash about him to look at, right? But um, just I, I, I remember I looked through his form and actually the, the late but the great Johnny Marshall rode him in a lot of those races when Bart Cummings had him. Mm. So... Um, but he wasn't a horse that looked anything flash, but when you got on his back, he'd arch his neck and, he, you know, he felt like a, a, a bit of a Ferrari, but maybe looked like a mini minor. <laughs> yeah, good. Exactly right. Well, yeah. first up, your brother Gary ran second on him at Caulfield and then you took over. 
you won three straight Group 1s, the Honda at Flemington, and then you went to Perth and you landed the big double, the Winfield and the Railway Stakes. Now, what did you think of him at that time, Michael? Well, do you know that when he ran second, my brother rode him, we had a, oh, a really good mare that I won that race on from New Zealand. And um, I remember pulling up and, and, you know, it was pretty important, you know, uh, that day for us, you know, and, mm. and my brother rode better loosened up and he said to me, he said, oh, what a horse this is. He said, I reckon, you know, I was a bit unlucky, got blocked. He said, another couple of strides, I would have beat you. And the mare I rode, I just, her name evades me at the moment, but she was like red second in group ones and was a really good mare. So the next start, I rode him in the, what was it, the, like, there used to be the George Adams at mile race at Flemington. Mm. And he, he only had 52 kilos and he won, but didn't didn't give me the feel like uh, that he was going to be the horse he turns out to be. But what he did, John, he went from that uh, mile race, or the Emirates they call it now, to Perth. And I won the Winfield on him, the 1800, and he came back to the mile, the railway, and his run in the railway was just had to be seen to believe. Like, mm-hmm. back second last, I got pushed off, and he got interfered with, and got up and won, and I said to the boss, I said, like, he shouldn't have, he wasn't entitled to win today. I said, he's a super horse. But what he did, he kept improving as he went along, and that was unusual for a gelding of his age. Yeah. And, you know, that that went on to, when he won the Cox Plate, he goes to Japan, and, and as I say, to get to the heights he did, he just kept getting better. And I remember when he came back from Japan, I rode him in the Australian Cup, and that race, he used to win by short margins, right? Yeah, he was an octagonal, wasn't he? Yeah, you'd think, oh, you know, maybe one day he's going to get beat. But when he came back from Japan, when he won the Australian Cup, he was up running third, second sort of thing, and bow road lead. And, and I was got to about the 500, the 400, and I thought, I'm going to get to the front too early, right? So I sort of grabbed hold of him again. He was just... And i never forget, Johnny, when I let him go... And I know Bo Rogue was a champion of his own right, right? Um, he sprinted like I've never ridden a horse before. It was yeah. like at the 300-metre mark after the 2,000 or the seven, you know, the race, he sprinted like a horse, like, special. You know, you just jumped on a Oakley Plate or a Newmarket winner. So that, that day was, I still had never ridden a horse that sprinted like that. After Perth, he had a freshen up. He came back to win the Blamey Stakes, Group 2. He ran second to Vaux Rogue in the Australian Cup, and old Vaux was flying at the time. Then he came to Sydney. He won a Group 1, the Sedgenho, which is now the Ranvet. He was unplaced in the BMW, and then he ran second to Sidiston in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes, and then for a well-earned spell. Before he came back, Michael, from that spell, Colin Hayes announced his retirement and David inherited, and it was a mammoth job, the Lindsay Park training operation. Yes, that's correct, John. Um, yeah, what a mammoth job to take over, but he was very well um, uh, trained by his father. You know, he had a lot of uh, his dad's training techniques and and uh, his dad's mannerisms, and uh, he did an absolute wonderful job, David. The day... He won the McKinnon Stakes on Derby Day of 1990. 
This was only a few months after Colin Hay's retirement and there were cynics around who were wondering if David would ever follow in his dad's footsteps. I know it worried David uh, to some degree for a short time, but he put the doubters on their bums on Derby Day 1990 when he trained six winners, all group races. You rode four of them and Peter Hutchinson the other two. Better loosen up was one of them. Yes, that was a great day to remember, John. Um, yeah, he trained six winners um, on the program. So what a wonderful training feat. And, um, yeah, it, it took any of the doubters away that, um, that the Hayes Empire was going to continue. Now, up to this point in time, Michael, you had won five Group 1s on Better Loosen Up, but obviously there was more to come. And 22 days after the McKinnon, you and the Better Loosen Up entourage were at Fuchu in Tokyo for the Japan Cup. What an eye-opener. You couldn't believe the crowd, you couldn't believe the noise, and you couldn't believe how early they got you to the barrier. Yes, that's correct, John. Um, I remember that day, I think I picked up a ride in the first race of the day, right, which was very early their time. It might have been 10.30 or 10.40, the first race. So when and I wanted to get a feel of the track and have a look. So when I got to the races, it, it wasn't a big crowd at all. And the jockeys' rooms, like in a bunker, it's under a big um, under the big grandstand. And when you're in the jockeys' room, you don't realise is the, the races are on that are being run or in other areas of Japan, but you don't see the crowd. So from race one, I think the Japan Cup was race eleven. I've come to go out to the mounting yard, out the back of the track, and I was just blown away. There was 120 or 130,000 people there, so I've gone from not realising, you know, how big this crowd is in the atmosphere. Um, so you got on the horses out the back of the track, and I remember Kevin Moses rode style with Century, and I think he was number one. Mm. So as they went out, I might have been number nine or ten. As the Japanese seen the first horse come onto the track, the eruption, the noise being under this tunnel was amazing. So when I came out and seen the people, um, I got around to the barriers and they, they, what they do, they hold you behind the barriers for a long time because of the bedding and the turnover and the crowd. So I said to them, I remember saying to Kevin Moses, I said, can you believe this? He said, um, the atmosphere, he said, he said, I remember he said to me, he said, I felt like Michael Jackson coming out on stage. He said, uh, <laughs> he said, I've never seen nothing like it. No. So I'm around these, the, and they put us in this big shed, like open air shed. Mm. And I thought, oh, I just that nervous. I need to have a wee or get, you know, just relieve myself. <laughs> so I've, I've gone off the horse, got the reins around my arm, trying to have a pee, and I honestly couldn't, right? Because I was, and I thought, oh, this didn't work. So I get back on him, but it was just the atmosphere. It was like probably, oh, very similar to our Melbourne Cup, but just amazing the crowd they got there. Yeah. Well, Brian Martin was there to call the race, and he still dines out on the story about you having a pee behind a tree. Oh, yeah. It was all caught on camera, and they were wondering what I was doing. But <laughs> the stewards did ask me after it. But, um, yeah, what an amazing atmosphere, achievement for the Hazers, for me, the horse, our strapo. Kate was over there, like and Gary Fennessy, it was just a real big team effort. And I became very good friends with uh, Gay Farrer and all the Farrers and Luke Coomey and and um, a lot of the owners of the horse. 
so and I still remain friends with them today. Um, but a great team of people, and Brian Martin was there, and he was part of the team, and you know it was it was an ex- wonderful experience and and something that I'll never forget. And no Australian horse since has been able to win the Japan Cup. Well, he had a good blow after the Japan trip. He resumed in February of '91. He won very well in the uh, Blamey Stakes. He won the Australian Cup. That's the race you tell me was one of his best ever performances. And uh, as you say, like Octagonal, he didn't win by fancy margins, but he did that day. It was 5.5 lengths, Mike. Oh, Johnny, he, um, it, it seems a bit silly to say this, but it, being a gelding, right, and, and getting to that age, I think he might have been five to six then. And he seemed to get better. Like, when he came back from Japan, that day he won the Australian Cup. Oh, you know, uh, I remember I was up, he used to get, like, jump out a bit slow and take a bit of time to get into his rhythm, but that day he jumped and wanted to travel. So during the race, he was on the bit wanting to go, and that was a little bit unusual. And I, I remember looking up, and uh, Vaux Road was in front, and, he, you know, he's a great front-running horse or a champion, Vaux Road. And he had that, that two or three weeks on me, but I knew I could pick him up pretty quick if I wanted to. So I'm a bit mindful. I'm saying, well, I don't want to get to the front too early. And I remember I got to about the 300 and I sort of just joined Van Rogan. I thought, well, I've got to go now. He sprinted. It was electrifying. Like I'd never ridden a horse and still to today that would have sprinted like Better Loosen Up did it. It was like jumping on a horse like Special or Scarlet Bits over the last 300. Yeah. You know, that was, that was the turn of foot that day he had. And I probably think that, you know, there wouldn't have been many horses or a horse in the world that day that could have beat him. And I think that was his best uh, performance by the way he gave me the feel. Well, his soundness issues uh, started to appear after that. He wasn't seen again for almost 11 months and it was sad to think that he never won again in 12 starts. He ran three placings. Your brother rode him, actually, in his final start in a race. That was at Morfordville on the 1st of February, 1993. He ran second, uh, but better loosen up some amazing career came to an end after that. He died in 2016, Michael, at the famous Living Legends Farm near Tullamarine Airport, his record stood, he wasn't over-raced, 45 starts, 17 wins, 12 placings, 4.8 million in 1993. Get your head around that. What would that be today? You won yeah. 12 races on him and eight of them were Group 1s and I'll bet there are quiet moments to this day when you think about better loosen up. Oh, don't worry, John. We used to go and visit him. We'd take him a few carrots. And mm. to their credit, Andrew Clark runs at Living Legends. And any of your listeners, if they're in Melbourne, it's a must-do thing. It's very close to the airport. Mm. But it's a wonderful initiative and better listen up to finish his, his life there, being so well looked after. It was quite amazing. We used to go and visit him often and... and um, Yes, yes. What a great way for him to end his last few years and, and to be so well looked after. And so ends part one of our special podcast with former champion jockey Michael Clark. In part two, Michael will talk about his only Melbourne Cup win on At Talak, a stayer who could dash like a top-grade sprinter. He talks of the hugely talented but unsound Almarad 
one of his two Cox Plate winners. He reflects on the strength of the Victorian riding ranks in his day and the last six years of his career riding outside of Australia. And this podcast has been produced by Supernova Sound. The sale that has produced the likes of the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Esther Jarb, Russian Revolution, Moss Fun, Pino, and Flying Artie in recent years has again attracted a stunning catalogue for 2019. The Australian Easter Yearling Sale catalogue is now available online and its depth and quality is again without peer in the Southern Hemisphere's Yearling Sale season. Among this year's spectacular Easter catalogue of 450 yearlings are 39 siblings to Group 1 winners like the Autumn Sun, Merchant Navy, Sunlight, Lankan Rupee, Brazen Bow, Shulls, Faulkner, Star Spangled Banner, Catchy, Dundeal, I Victory, Lucky Bubbles, Shooting to Win, She Will Reign, Seamus Award and Pino. There is also the progeny of 34 Group 1 winning mares such as Hasna, River Dove, Pear Tart, Our Egyptian Rain, Rostova, Steps in Time, Brazilian Pulse, Provocative, Headway and Dizelle. Super Stallion Schnitzel is the leading sire with 37 entries while the ill-fated Sebring has 33. Fastnet Rock 31, I Am Invincible 31, there are 25 Vancouver's, 22 by Reduce Choice, 21 by Zoo Star, 19 by Medagliadoro, 19 by Pride of Dubai, So You Think has 18 in the catalogue and they round out the top 10. There is, as always, a strong international flavour with yearlings by the likes of Deep Impact, Frankel, Lord Canaloa, Tappet and Harbinger also catalogued. The 2019 Inglis Easter Yearling Sale is just bursting with quality. Look for the catalogue online. <laughs>